to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. The Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation. It's like marijuana ought to be legalized. Good people smoke marijuana. Now, here's your host, Radical Russ Belleville. It works better when it's plugged in. Good day, tokers and tokets and non-toking lovers of liberty. It is Monday, March 13th, 2017, and it's got to be 420 somewhere in the world. It's episode number 906, and coming up on today's show, in the news, New Mexico's governor vetoes industrial hemp yet again. In our cannabis focus, Oklahoma's legislature is completely ignoring the will of the people who want to defelonize drug possession. In drug war data mining, we learn that kids who use synthetic weed take greater risks. And in our cannabis Q&A, Dr. Mitch takes on new studies claiming that pot causes a greater risk of heart attack and stroke. And in the Radical Rant, I review what's happened with arrests, use, traffic safety, and crime in Colorado. But first, let's get to the cannabis headline news. Covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis, medical marijuana, and industrial hemp. Now your marijuana headlines in 4 minutes and 20 seconds. This is Cannabis News. This is your Cannabis Headline News for Monday, March 13th, 2017. Governor Susanna Martinez on Saturday vetoed another bill that would have established a research program for industrial hemp, a measure that legislators of both parties said could create enormous business opportunities for New Mexico's farmers. Martinez offered no explanation for her decision, which she announced in a brief statement. Her veto of Senate Bill 6, sponsored by Senator Cisco McSorley, a Democrat from Albuquerque, came only three days after she vetoed a more sweeping bill on hemp research authored by members of the House of Representatives. McSorley's bill had cleared the Senate 37 to 2 and the House by a vote of 58 to 8. Martinez's second and final term expires at the end of 2018. President Trump named Scott Gottlieb to head the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. While Gottlieb hasn't said much publicly about marijuana, aside from a few vague tweets, the pick is seen as a blow to reformers who had hoped the nomination would go to Jim O'Neill or Balaji Srinivasan, whose names also had been floated. O'Neill served on the board of a director, board of directors of a marijuana legalization organization, and Srinivasan has criticized racially discriminatory drug law enforcement. In a related development, the joint blog had claimed that Gottlieb previously recommended medical marijuana to patients. The blog linked to an interview in which a Dr. Scott Gottlieb said he's written medical cannabis recommendations for, quote, patients with terminal illnesses and MS, end quote. The problem is that the joint blog had cited the wrong Dr. Scott Gottlieb. The post has since been deleted. Denver, Colorado's mayor is imploring the Trump administration to leave legal marijuana alone. Quote, it would behoove the federal government to put in systems to kind of allow for the system to move forward. And this comes from a guy who opposed it initially, end quote, said Denver Mayor Michael Hancock during a sit-down interview with Next. The Trump administration has sent conflicting signals on whether it will enforce federal laws against marijuana. Mayor Hancock says he's been convinced that legal recreational marijuana is a benefit to the city. Quote, 
It was never about money for me. The reality is, this is about a system that the people have said they want, end quote, said Hancock. Connecticut's continuing fiscal woes, coupled with a new law that fully takes effect next year in neighboring Massachusetts, have prompted state lawmakers to take their most serious look yet at possibly legalizing the recreational use of marijuana for adults. Several bills with bipartisan support that sanction the retail sale and cultivation of pot are currently progressing through the General Assembly. The first bill drew dozens of supporters last week at a public health committee hearing, many lauding the legislation as a way to regulate an illegal industry and potentially deliver millions of dollars for the state's coffers. Democratic Governor Daniel P. Malloy contends Connecticut should first wait and see what happens to its neighbors to the north. Four Anchorage marijuana shops generated $22,000 in sales tax revenue in January, a city official has said. January was Anchorage's first full month collecting marijuana tax revenue, but the total wasn't much greater than the December revenue. The first Anchorage marijuana shop opened December 15th. Two more quickly followed. In December, $19,880 in sales tax was generated from those businesses, said Bliss Cruz, a manager in Anchorage's Treasury Division. A marijuana sales tax of 5% was approved by Anchorage voters in April 2016. The tax is separate from the state excise tax of $50 per ounce of marijuana bud and $15 per ounce for other parts of the plant, which the grower pays to the state treasury. Going into January, shops across the state faced supply shortages and either closed temporarily or shortened their hours. There are now six shops open in Anchorage, Cruz said. Revised rules for the Ohio Medical Marijuana Program expected to debut next year won't allow home delivery, home growing, or smoking of marijuana, but would permit more dispensaries than originally outlined. The Columbus Dispatch reports that the updated rules released by the State Pharmacy Board allow for at least 60 marijuana dispensaries rather than the 40 originally set. The changes also allow the shops to stay open for two more hours with a permitted operating window of 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. With the expanded access to those shops, the pharmacy board decided against allowing home delivery of marijuana. This has been your Cannabis Headline News for Monday, March 13, 2017. I'm Russ Belville. In the interest of fair and balanced journalism, the Russ Belville Show presents the anti-drug public service announcement of the day. My brother's friend, Rick wanted to do something special for him for his birthday he bought him some crack maybe it was bad stuff maybe they just couldn't handle it that was two years ago today sometimes i think rick was a lucky one he died happy birthday buddy This has been the Russ Belleville Show's anti-drug public service announcement of the day, exclusively on RadicalRuss.com. Hey everybody, it's Radical Russ here from 420 Radio, inviting you to be like me and get your ink done at Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo, Fort Worth's most female-friendly, clean, sterile, awesome tattoo shop. Thomas and his crew are true artists who can design you a custom piece or use a design you bring in. Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo also offers all styles of tattooing as well as piercings and all-around fun. In the DFW area, stop by Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo and tell them Radical Russ sent you. Trust me, it'll feel awesome. You're not high.
You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. But I'm getting some very negative reports coming out of Colorado as to what's happening. Okay, well, maybe you're high, too. Marijuana, morning, noon, and night. You have two years longer than people that don't smoke and don't drink. And eight to 24 years longer than people that do. You gotta be out of your mind not to smoke and don't Once you know this, even two years longer if you smoke it, if you eat the seed out of three million seeds and food stuff on earth, the number one thing in the whole world is hemp from one to a hundred before you get to soybean. It's the safest thing you can do in the universe. The world of cannabis is evolving at a frenetic pace. The Russ Belleville Show gets behind the headlines to take a deeper look at breaking news in our cannabis focus. Today we take a look at a ballot initiative that passed in the state of Oklahoma in the 2016 election. It was State Question 780. And State Question 780 changed certain nonviolent drug-related crimes from felonies to misdemeanors. Uh, this is a basically a defelonization bill. And the felonies uh, were changed to misdemeanors with a maximum penalty of one year in prison and a fine of $1,000, thereby reducing the number and duration of state prison sentences for those crimes. Uh, State Question 780 reclassified certain crimes as misdemeanors to save the prison system money, uh, and it had a follow-up ballot question, 781, designed to redistribute the money saved by those reduced prison costs to the counties to fund rehabilitation of criminals. And the state measure 780 passed in the 2016 election by a wide margin, 58 to 41. 58 to 41, 831,000 votes in favor, 596,000 votes opposed. And state question 781, the follow-up ballot uh, question, passed by nearly the same margin, 56 to 43. So clearly, the people of Oklahoma overwhelmingly agreed with the idea that the possession, the simple possession, we're not talking sales, we're not talking distribution to kids, uh, manufacturer, anything like that, but the simple possession of drugs And not just marijuana, they're also talking about possession of crack and meth and heroin and other drugs. Oklahomans agreed, 58% of them voted on this, that those should be treated as misdemeanors. No matter how many times you're caught with a personal amount of drugs, no matter how many times you've been convicted, the people of Oklahoma agreed overwhelmingly, that's not a felony level crime. That is a misdemeanor. So today, in the Cannabis Focus, we take a look at the Oklahoma legislature, which is now moving through House Bill 1482. This is a bill that reinstates the felony-level laws for drug possession near schools. Now, it got just enough votes in the House to make it on to the Oklahoma Senate. Originally, originally this bill was going to allow prosecutors to charge people with a felony for possessing drugs if they're near schools, parks, churches, or other public gathering places. 
but it got pared down by amendments to just the school zones. So I know what people are thinking. Uh, we want to keep drugs away from the kids. We don't want crack dealers hanging out near the, uh, uh, the playgrounds or whatever. But these bills have an unintended consequence, and that is they define these school zones with uh, some thousand feet. The House Bill 1482 allows prosecutors to charge a suspect with a felony if they're caught with drugs within a thousand feet of school property and also allows enhanced charge for possession, the felony charge, if you're possessing in the presence of a child under 12 years old. Now, this is all about, you know, uh, what about the children? How are we going to save the children? My God, won't somebody please think of the children? Won't somebody please think of the children? But again, these kind of laws have an unintended consequence. Namely, if you live in a city, you live within a thousand feet of a school. Especially poorer people are tending to live in places where they're concentrated in in multi-unit housing and they're close to these school districts. So it makes it pretty much that if you're caught with drugs anywhere in a city, even your own neighborhood, even your own house can be within a thousand feet of a school. And that brings back that felony level prosecution that the people of Oklahoma overwhelmingly decided should not exist. Now, the Republican representative, uh, Tim Downing, uh, in Oklahoma says, quote, this law exists for children and children only. It's wrong to say this is what the people of Oklahoma chose when we didn't allow them to vote on it. I don't know what the Senate will do. I don't know what the governor will do, but I want you to search and say, what should I do for the kids and what should I do for the schools? And uh, uh, State Representative Scott Biggs said, another Republican said, quote, There's a group in this house that want to sell out our kids because they want to save a dime or two. If you want to sell our kids out, go ahead and vote no for this bill. Folks, this is the divide and conquer strategy. This is obfuscation at the top level. This is trying to confuse the people of Oklahoma into not recognizing that the legislature is completely disregarding the will of the voters. It was clear as this state question was on the ballot that people were deciding to end the felonization of simple possession. Now, the opponents had every opportunity and used those opportunities throughout the campaign to point out that this would take away the school zone uh, restriction, that it would make it so people could possess drugs within a school zone and not get treated with a felony charge. And that was not enough to stop the people of Oklahoma from overwhelmingly supporting state question 780. This idea, this this uh, representative Downing says I, they didn't get a chance to vote on it. Yes, they did. They voted on it in the 2016 election. These legislators think that the voters are stupid. If that uh, part of the measure, if if having the school zones be a place where people could possess drugs and only get a misdemeanor, if that was enough of a poison pill to kill the bill, it would have killed the bill. It's not like people go ahead and make these drug law reforms willy-nilly without considering all of the possible consequences. As a particular example, let's take a look at my home state of Oregon. In Oregon, we had legalization on the ballot in 2012. In Oregon, we had dispensaries on the ballot in 2010. 
Both times, the voters of Oregon rejected those initiatives. They rejected the dispensary one in 2010. They rejected the legalization one in 2012 by about the same margin. Got about 44% support, which is about the floor of support for anything cannabis-related here in Oregon. But the, the public wouldn't get on board with those for what they found to be flaws in those particular initiatives, despite the fact that Oregon overwhelmingly supports medical marijuana, despite the fact that by 2013, we were passing a dispensary legislation that was popular with the legislature and with the people, despite the fact that by 2014, we'd come up with a more sensible legalization plan and pass that by an overwhelming margin. It's not as if the people of Oregon don't like marijuana legalization, but they wouldn't pass one that contained too many problematic provisions. Similarly, in the state of Oklahoma, if that school zone issue was a problematic provision, the people of Oklahoma would not have overwhelmingly passed this initiative. They are simply trying to reinstate felonies for possession that will once again disproportionately affect the poor, disproportionately affect the youth, disproportionately affect the minorities largely living in the cities of Oklahoma, in in Tulsa, in Norman. All of these places, especially the places that have uh, the colleges, uh, Oklahoma University uh, and Oklahoma State University, are going to see more arrests, more jail time, and it's going to cost the people of Oklahoma at a time when the budgets are tight, when we can't just be throwing money away, locking up people for their various possession of drug charges. What good is a statewide initiative if the legislators in that state refuse to obey the will of the people? We saw it happen here in Oregon. We passed our legalization in 2014, 56% support for that, that said, if you want to ban marijuana businesses, your city or county has to have a vote on that. But the legislature disregarded the will of the people and went ahead and set up their own little exception for the pot-hating counties in eastern Oregon to be able to ban without a vote of the people. We have the vote of the people in Massachusetts and Maine calling for the regulation of commercial cannabis grows, the regulation of commercial cannabis markets, and the legislatures there are trying to undo key provisions, trying to ban home grow, trying to mandate certain uh, uh, potency limits on products, trying to just completely change what the people have voted for in these initiatives. Now, I welcome legislatures to get involved in reforming marijuana laws. The thing that's really hurting my feelings at this point and enraging me at this point is that they've had all the time in the world to get involved in this particular uh, subject. We've been bringing up the point of marijuana legalization for years now and legislate and, and, and submitting bills. We've been submitting bills and lobbying and asking these legislators to make some sort of substantive changes. And for years, they've ignored the issue. They've tabled the bills. They've let them die in committee. But now when we get the initiatives on the ballot and we get them passed by a, an overwhelming majority of the people, now they want to get involved. Now they want to apply their wisdom as public servants as to how best to set public policies for cannabis consumption, for cannabis use, for cannabis cultivation. Getting involved a little late, if you ask me. 
It's time that the politicians recognize that the people have been ahead of them for years on the issues of criminal justice reform, the issues of the drug war, the issues of marijuana legalization, and to take the cue from the people. Everybody does that. Yeah, but Daddy says I'm the best at it. All right, that sound means that it's 20 after 4.20 in the Mountain Time Zone. Happy 4.20 all of our friends in the Rocky Mountains. We're going to take a break, and uh, when we come back, we got some drug war data mining, a new study on kids and synthetic weed. And then after that, we'll talk about more cannabis science with our own Dr. Mitch Early Wine. Stay tuned. We're back right after this. Russ Belville Show is proudly sponsored by the Marijuana Business Association. The MJBA, called by NBC News the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce, is the fastest growing business association in the fastest growing industry in America. I've been working with the MJBA for years and I personally invite you to join the MJBA. MJBA also publishes the popular MJ Headline News on Facebook and the MJNewsNetwork.com and Marijuana Channel One on YouTube. Visit MJBA.net for more details. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. Marijuana kills people on the highways. Traffic deaths in Colorado have increased dramatically. All right. Maybe you're high, too. It's time for Cannabis Facts about teen drug use from Robert Platchorn's TheSilverTour.org. This message is supported by our donors and Hemp, Inc., a public company poised to lead America's hemp revolution at HempInc.com. A recent survey by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control indicates that in states that have legalized medical marijuana, the rate of marijuana consumption among high school students has not increased. In fact, in legal states like Colorado, teen use has actually decreased significantly. It's simply no longer a big deal for teenagers in legal states. This was Cannabis Facts from thesilvertour.org, an educational nonprofit supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., a public company poised to lead America's hemp revolution at hempinc.com. Promoting the end of adult cannabis prohibition is easy because we have facts, science, reason, compassion, evidence, truth, and logic on our side. It's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us. Learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use, arrests, seizures, rehabs, drug tests, and more on this edition of Drug War Data Mining. Today in the Drug War Data Mines, we take a look at a report on LiveScience.com entitled Fake Weed Linked to More Risk-Taking Than Real Marijuana. Teens who use fake weed or synthetic cannabis may be more likely to engage in risky behaviors than those who use only marijuana, a new study finds. High school students in the study who use synthetic cannabinoids had a much greater likelihood of using other drugs and engaging in risky sexual behaviors compared to high school students who had used only marijuana, researchers found. Quote, the findings illustrate a dramatic difference in the association with risky health behaviors by type of marijuana use. End quote. Heather Clayton, first author of the paper and a health scientist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, told Live Science. For example, 
The researchers found that students who had used synthetic cannabinoids, uh, and we're talking spice, K2, what they call synthetic pot sometimes, uh, were more likely to have also used substances like alcohol, heroin, and ecstasy than individuals who had used marijuana but not synthetic cannabinoids. In addition, those teens who used synthetic cannabinoids were more likely to report having engaged in injury or violence-related behavior, including physical fights or riding with a driver who had been drinking. Clayton told Live Science, quote, We found that students who used synthetic marijuana had a significantly greater likelihood of engaging in the majority of health risk behaviors included in the study compared to students who used marijuana only, end quote. The authors noted in the paper that this is the first study to explore the association of the use of synthetic cannabinoids in U.S. high school students and health behaviors related to violence, mental health, and sexual health. Synthetic cannabinoids are created in a laboratory rather than derived from a plant like regular marijuana. These synthetics have similar effects to THC, the active ingredient in marijuana, but can be even more potent than that chemical and can cause side effects. Those may include vomiting, hypertension, hallucinations, and even seizures, heart damage, dependence, and death, depending on the specific type or mixture used. In the new study, the researchers looked at data from a survey conducted yearly by the CDC called the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. In 2015, more than 15,000 students in grades 9 through 12 from all over the U.S. took part in the study. The survey asked students to report certain behaviors across four areas— Violence, mental health, sexual health, and drug use, including whether they had ever used marijuana or synthetic cannabinoids. The researchers found that 9% of students reported having used synthetic cannabinoids at some point. In addition, 30% of students reported that they had only ever used marijuana. Most students who reported using synthetic cannabinoids also reported using marijuana, though the reverse was not true. Less than a quarter of students who reported using marijuana also reported having used synthetic cannabinoids. Results also showed that 61% of students reported that they had never used synthetic cannabinoids or marijuana. The researchers noted that the survey data asked students to report their own behaviors, which means students could have over- or under-reported certain behaviors. In addition, because of the nature of the survey, researchers did not learn about the timing of the different behaviors. Thus, the scientists could not determine whether synthetic cannabinoid use came before other risky behaviors or after, for example. Joseph Palomar, an assistant professor of population health at New York University, said that the new study indeed showed that teens who use synthetic cannabinoids tended to also frequently use marijuana. However, Palomar also cautioned the study did not look at how frequently the teens used each drug. Quote, It is likely that many of these users used synthetic cannabinoids some time ago and didn't ever use again. End quote. Palomar told Live Science. In fact, Palomar noted that synthetic cannabinoid use has decreased substantially among teens in recent years, as shown by his 2016 paper in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence. The researchers said that they hope the study will help health professionals and schools develop strategies to help prevent the use of both synthetic cannabinoids and marijuana. Again, this report up on LiveScience.com, and it brings up a few questions, namely, why would kids using spice be more likely to engage in other risky behaviors than those engaged in the use of marijuana? Well, I think it's a pretty simple question to answer. Education. They understand that cannabis is a safer choice. So the students who are inclined to be safer, 
those who are already a little shy about taking great risks are going to gravitate toward the safest substance they could possibly use. They're going to gravitate toward the use of marijuana and they're going to shun the use of these other more uh, harmful substances. Conversely, a a student who doesn't care very much about risk in general, the kind of kid who's going to ride his dirt bike over, uh, try to jump a ditch or something, the kind of kid who's going to have unprotected sex, the kind of kid who might try snorting a line of coke, is the kind of kid who doesn't have a, a risk aversion in the first place. So all the tales he hears about synthetic pot, about the uh, K2 and the spice causing all these problems, aren't as likely to deter that kid as the safety-focused kid who's going to pick marijuana. I don't think this shows that synthetic weed makes kids more risky or real weed makes kids behave more safely. I think it just shows the opposite, that kids that are safe by their nature are going to gravitate toward marijuana. Kids that are risky by their nature are going to gravitate toward synthetic cannabinoids, alcohol, other drugs, and other risky behaviors. It's all that chicken and the egg kind of question. What came first? I think the kid comes first and their drug choices come second. All right, we're going to take a break and talk more cannabis science coming up in this next segment. Every week we talk with Dr. Mitch Earlywine, one of America's leading marijuana researchers. That's coming up live next here on the Russ Bell Show. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Hey everybody, it's Radical Russ here from 420 Radio inviting you to be like me and get your ink done at Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo, Fort Worth's most female-friendly, clean, sterile, awesome tattoo shop. Thomas and his crew are true artists who can design you a custom piece or use a design you bring in. Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo also offers all styles of tattooing as well as piercings and all-around fun. In the DFW area, stop by Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo and tell them Radical Russ sent you. Trust me, it'll feel awesome. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. I smell pot coming from over here and grilled onions from over there. Two of my favorite smells ever. Both those onions and that pot smell really good up here, you know. All right. Well, maybe you're high, too. Warning. It's taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they pay me to say that. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. It's time for the Russ Belleville Show's Cannabis Q&A with Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Dr. Earlywine is a professor of psychology at the State University of New York at Albany and a leading author and researcher on cannabinoids and health who pins the Ask Dr. Mitch column for High Times Magazine. Welcome back, everybody. Time for our Cannabis Q&A segment with Dr. Mitch Earlywine. How you doing, Dr. Mitch? 
Lisa. Uh, crazy time. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Great to have you on the air again. we got so many studies to get to, so much to talk about. It's been a busy week in marijuana research, so let's get right to it. The first study we're taking a look at here uh, reiterates something we've heard before, uh, the threat that cannabis use may pose for the risk of heart attack or stroke. Uh, what is this latest study telling us? Does it tell us anything different than what we've debunked in the past? Well, so this, you know, it's correlational work. It's not really uh, quite the, the sort of thing we want to hear, but there is a small but statistically significant uh, co-variation between risk for stroke or risk for heart attack. Um, but uh, again, we're, we're talking about, you know, these enormous samples and, relatively small effects and so it's it's hard to know what to make of it covariating out some of the you know correlates that often go with this is also very very difficult the bottom line is if we you know exercise take good care of ourselves uh eat right and try to keep our blood pressure down uh that's pretty much about all we can do is there any other activities uh, that correlated about the same level as the risk that cannabis may pose well, what's funny is it's not even big enough uh, for most like epidemiological uh, studies to get too worked up over. We're talking about uh, associations that I don't really have a good uh, parallel with. Uh, anytime you're less than doubling your risk for something, uh, usually folks just say there's you know there's statistical significant thing here, but it's not not enough to make a lot out of. And uh, we're way below that. I think the cardiac risk was only up by 10% and 26% on the on the stroke. Mm, okay. Kind of like uh, if I buy two tickets for the Powerball, I've doubled my chances of winning? <laughs> exactly. But but it's still so, so small. And, uh, and now this is like buying one and a fourth tickets <laughs> one for fourth Powerball. Tickets. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's take a look at this uh, next study, which is uh, something that uh, – it reiterates something that we've heard anecdotally from many patients that suffer from seizure disorders. And this one is how epilepsy patients are turning to cannabis rather than their pharmaceuticals and even seeking relief from their pharmaceuticals uh, in cannabis. Uh, what more can we make of this? This is wild because we do know that there is a direct effect of the cannabinoids on seizure rates. <clears throat> this is saying the side effects of some of the medications that folks use for those very same things can also be controlled with, with cannabis. So it's, it's like, uh, here's, here's a, a double dose, if you will, a chance to, uh, make good use of cannabis as an anti-seizure medication itself, but also to make, uh, the other anti-seizure meds easier to take. And, you know, we, we think of cannabis as an anti-nausea and, and just a, a general ease of uh, onset for any kind of gastrointestinal impact of, of any other sort of drug. And these anti-epileptic drugs aren't notorious for those kinds of things, but they definitely, you know, do occur for some folks. And so it's kind of nice to know that cannabis can not only help those side effects, but then add a little extra boost to those anti-seizure effects. We have a question from our live chat room on YouTube. Uh, our viewers there want to know if there's been any significant research on the effects of THCV, one of the uh, cannabinoids. Yeah, THCV is still uh, pretty much in the lore stage. So we're hearing a lot about its potential as far as uh, altering appetite, perhaps uh, counter to what we're accustomed to for plain, plain old THC. So 
THCV might actually decrease appetite, whereas THC is sort of legendary for its ability to increase appetite. And then uh, otherwise, we're really just in the in the rat lab stage with this one, and it just doesn't have the the publications that even you know CBD has. Never mind how much uh, THC itself does. Okay, the next couple of uh, studies we have to take a look at have to do with the subject of cannabis and driving. And the first one comes from my home state of Oregon, where our measure 91 mandated a earmark of money for the state to investigate cannabis and driving and to evaluate whether or not we ought to have a per se DUID or what we ought to do when it comes to cannabis and impaired driving. And the uh, headline I got from this one said that the uh, Oregon DUI study shows there's no epidemic of stoned drivers. Uh, is that what you get from the study or, or some other good news from this? I mean, the bottom line is there was <laughs> a modest increase um, you know, statewide on on uh, sort of drug-related, particularly cannabis-related traffic fatalities. Um, so I think in 2004 there were 13, and then 2015 there were 16. So I mean, we're talking about a relatively rare phenomenon, thank God, statewide, and that these numbers are, are really pretty small. We, you know, always reiterate anybody who does use cannabis um, should be super careful about um, driving and wait till the impact of the plant has decreased dramatically. And we do, you know, we do see modest but, um, you know, detectable changes in the ability to hit the brake quickly or steer in laboratory work on cannabis. But the, you know, THC-related fatal crashes are not up in really any of the states where uh, cannabis has had uh, looser laws, and it's not the kind of thing that we should uh, really go crazy about. If uh, you know people will focus on good driving habits and just make sure their general motor skills are, are good, that's going to be fine. The idea of a blood limit for THC uh, is probably not a good idea given the disparate rates of tolerance we have across different users. Yeah, and the good news is that Oregon report does recommend against any sort of per se limit, saying the science you know, doesn't show that there's any correlation like there is with alcohol in a dose-dependent manner. Uh, the follow-up we've got on this comes from Colorado, where there was a survey of Colorado's uh, cannabis consumers, and they found that 57% of the cannabis consumers in Colorado admitted that they had driven at least once within a two-hour window after consuming cannabis. My fear is that this kind of information would be taken by lawmakers to say, we need to detect whether someone's used within two hours, regardless of whether or not they're impaired by that. Uh, what do you make of this data, this uh, survey data? I, I understand your concern, and I'm, I'm just sad that that misinterpretation is, is so likely. What really matters is your ability to drive or your, you know, performance on any kind of motor skill tasks. And that, that duration uh, is going to be so dose dependent and so uh, varied as far as your own personal tolerance is concerned that any kind of heuristic about a certain number of hours or a certain uh, blood THC level is just a, a really bad idea. Yeah, I'm concerned because of the uh, technology that's being developed uh, with respect to uh, uh, breath testing, which they say only detects THC in the breath within a two-hour window. And I'm afraid they'll they'll uh, they'll match that technology with statistics that say, well, in general, 
the general population, people that drive within two hours are going to be impaired. Uh, what can we do to fight back against that? Uh, what kind of science would we uh, use in that battle? I mean, we really do have some pretty compelling evidence that the roadside sobriety tests have a lot more promise. And so I, I would be much more interested in if you know you can walk a straight line and juggle and ride a unicycle than I can if you can pass a breath test of THC exposure. All right. We'll keep our eye on that and try to educate as many people as we can, especially some of the decision makers, to understand the science behind cannabis and driving impairment. Now, we've reported many times on the science between cannabis and cancer, uh, all the way back to Dr. Tashkin in 2006, finding less incidence of head, neck, and lung cancer among cannabis consumers. This latest study uh, claims there is less risk of bladder cancer among cannabis consumers. Consumers. Give us the details on that, Dr. Mitch. I mean, it's wild because, you know, anytime we have something correlational like this going in the other direction, I'm always saying, hey, we really need a replication and we have to be super concerned. But uh, this is one that's shown up uh, previously and something that uh, I, you know, I don't want to let folks think, hey, you're, you know, your risk of bladder cancer is going to drop simply by using the plant. But we've got... Um, you know, some pretty impressive <laughs> data as far as this goes. It's just that uh, this type of cancer is relatively rare, and so I, I, I don't want to make too much of it, just as we were sort of joking about uh, the same thing with buying a lottery ticket. Uh, buying a bad lottery ticket is also uh, a possibility with these kinds of cancers. So if, uh, if you can do anything you can to avoid uh, bladder cancer in particular, don't smoke those nasty cigarettes it's still worth doing. You may have a slight buffering uh, effect uh, if you do if you do use cannabis, but don't count on that. Do everything you can to, to take good care of yourself. So is that a suggestion that there's a tendency to overblow these correlations when something's negative about cannabis and to underreport them when something's good? Sad but sad but true. So I, I, I do feel like uh, this is one that actually has replicated now. It's, again, it's not a, a, a having of the of the rate of you know. Just as I was saying, hey, we got to double something before we should get too concerned about it. We aren't we aren't uh, decreasing the rate by uh, a half all the way on this, but it's definitely it's definitely there, and it seems to have replicated in previous data. All right. For our final minute, we've got one last uh, bit of research, some new research on cannabis fear and anxiety and how uh, cannabis may help in those uh, areas. Uh, what can we take away from this study? Well, so this one, uh, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I'm always up and down about how behavioral interventions are much better for the anxiety-related disorders than any kind of pharmacological one. But this one really does focus on cannabidiol, which isn't psychoactive in the, in the first place, as, as we've mentioned. And uh, this is another phenomenon where we've got multiple data sets now all pointing that, you know, small doses of CBD really can have uh, an impact on basically just the, the way uh, anxious stimuli are processed. And uh, there's really no, you know, negative side effect with CBD. So it seems like uh, the potential for, for giving this a chance seems really worth it and it's it's not like there's anything to worry about i still would encourage folks to you know seek a, a, a nice self-help book on anxiety or go ahead and see a therapist a few sessions but this is a, a such a promising and low side effect kind of treatment 
that a, a pure CBD intervention seems like it's worth trying. All right, sounds good. Dr. Mitch Earlywine joins us every Monday to discuss cannabis science here on the show, but you can also get a hold of him directly through email and keep it private if you like by emailing 420research at gmail.com. That's 420research at gmail.com. Dr. Mitch is also the host of Burning Issues on CannabisRadio.com, a weekly podcast. We'll give you 30-minute updates and interviews on the latest in cannabis science. Dr. Mitch, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next week. Take care. All right, stay tuned, folks. When we come back, time for a radical rant on on uh, what has happened in Colorado since they've legalized marijuana. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. You know Herb Thrasher from the Herb Thrasher Flower Hour. Now get ready for Herb Age Designs for the proud cannabis consumer. Herb Age Designs, lifestyle gear for the 420 friendly. Herb Age Designs, we've got frisbee golf discs and durable hemp gear. Herb Age Designs, we've got shot glasses, drinking glasses, coffee mugs, and beer cozies. Check us out on Facebook and online at HerbAgeDesigns.com. And follow Herb Age and Herb Thrasher on Twitter. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. We have four times the incarceration rate on a percentage basis of any country in the world. In second place is New Zealand. You can find Radical Russ online everywhere. Warning. It's taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they pay me to say that. That sucks. I hate... Yeah. <laughs> A public service message from the Rust Belleville Show. Total war against public enemy public number one. Ten number one. federal criminal penalties for the one ounce of marijuana. Marijuana is probably the most dangerous drug. Legalization no. is just another word for surrender. I experimented with marijuana and didn't inhale. This is not medicine. This is a cheating chong show. Encourage people to use less drugs. I am that, that was the point. I think it would be a mistake to leave a state. Negative reports coming out of Colorado. Don't smoke marijuana. Today in the rant, we take a look at what's happened in Colorado since marijuana was legalized. Because every so often, some prohibitionist shill will erupt onto the internet with some blather about how Colorado's gone to hell in a handbasket since the legalization of marijuana for adult use in 2012. Sometimes it's Kevin Sabat, the Joker to my Batman trying to ensure pot smokers are forced into drug courts so they can become clients of big rehab. Or sometimes it's a, a elected official spouting some reefer madness nonsense that was debunked decades ago. Whether it's the, the gateway theory that marijuana is going to lead straight to heroin, whether it's marijuana potency is increased by 9 billion percent since the 60s, whatever it is. There's always somebody out there that gets my attention, and I can always count on somebody typing something stupid enough to goad me into dropping some science in response. This time, however, <laughs> this time it was one of our own. Uh, this guy came across my Facebook feed complaining that legalization, you know, with scare quotes, has ruined everything in Colorado. 
Oh, no, legalization has ruined everything in Colorado. They lamented that before legalization, there was all manner of marijuana smoking events. But but now, most of them get shut down. Can't even have a cannabis cup in Denver. This post complained that before legalization, nobody ever got busted for public consumption. But now, there's public consumption tickets happening all the time. This post also complained that because of legalization... There's all these new crimes that tokers could be busted for, and they still get busted disproportionately if they're black, Latino, and young. Now, to be fair, there are some kernels of truth in that mountain of bullshit. Public consumption tickets in Colorado courts have skyrocketed. Uh, In Denver, the uh, uh, public consumption tickets have gone through the roof. And where we used to be able to hold cannabis cups in Denver, yeah, it's true that They are no more. And the prosecutions for what marijuana crimes remain do skew against racial minorities and the young. However, (laughs) to put scare quotes around the word legalization is to deny the vastly improved world for cannabis consumers after 2012 in Colorado than before. Let's take a look at some of the facts. First of all, Prior to marijuana legalization in the state of Colorado, there were between 6 and 7.5 thousand marijuana charges filed in Colorado courts. Between 6 and 7.5 thousand charges filed, not uh, arrests. Keep in mind that we are talking about the, uh, the citations from the Colorado uh, courts. And how many cases there have been, this may not necessarily be the same as how many arrests there might have been in Colorado. So let's keep that in mind. Still, we are taking, we are looking at far fewer charges in the state of Colorado for marijuana uh, possession, of course, than we have had prior to marijuana legalization. So I'm sorry if there's not a cannabis cup or some fun party to go to. But when it comes to a choice between whether there ought to be parties going on in Colorado or whether we ought to be arresting people in Colorado, I will take reducing the arrests every single time. Now, taking a look at uh, the cultivation cases, there used to be around 300 cultivation cases filed annually before Colorado legalized home grows of three mature plants for all adults. There have been less than 100 cases filed since legalization passed. So we went from six to seven and a half thousand marijuana possession charges to fewer than 250. We gone from 300 cultiva- cultivation cases a year to fewer than a hundred. And that's not all, not just the stuff that we legalize, the less than an ounce possession and the less than six plant gardens, three mature, three mature, not just that, but since most busts of greater marijuana offenses begin when the police officer or his canine claims to smell marijuana, eliminating that contraband status of marijuana has also reduced charges filed for greater amounts of marijuana or cannabis plant counts. In fact, non-possession cases of, of, uh, in the Colorado courts, every case that had to do with something other than possession declined from about 1,000 a year to around 600 a year. And yes, it's true, the public consumption cases went through the roof. 
most of them are tickets that people don't take to court and they just pay them off, right? But for the people that are fighting those tickets in court, the average was about 67 a year in the three years prior to legalization. Now that average is up to about 128. So more people are having to fight public consumption tickets. And that's a tiny sliver of the total number of tickets that have been issued annually. So yeah, there, there's been an increase in the public consumption tickets. And, and yeah, the way to deal with that is to create public consumption lounges and special event t- licensing and so forth. But in every other category, and, and keep in mind, the public consumption is just an infraction. In every other category, the three-year average is down. If you look at the three years prior to 2012 versus the three years after 2012, there are 30% fewer possession with intent cases, 22% fewer distribution cases, 74% fewer manufacturing cases, 28% fewer conspiracy cases, and 88% fewer other cases. So there are far fewer cases, even of the stuff that wasn't legalized, far fewer cases than before legalization. That's another concern of marijuana legalization in Colorado, that legalization would open the floodgates of marijuana to the youth. Kevin Sabet from Project Sam is fond of pointing out that Colorado has led the nation in the rate of marijuana use by youth aged 12 to 17 since legalization. That is true. But what he won't tell you is that in the second full year of legalization, Colorado's youth use rate declined over 11% from the previous year. And that was the fourth greatest decline measured that year. He also won't tell you that Colorado's youth use rate has remained fairly steady since 2009, while the use rates by people of legal age to use cannabis, especially people over age 50, have skyrocketed. For the 12 to 17 age group, if you look at 2009, And you compare that to 2015, that is, take a look at three years before legalization versus three years after legalization. We find that the monthly use of marijuana by teenagers, 12 to 17, went from 10.17% to 11.13%. That's an increase of about a tenth, a 9.5% relative increase. No, we don't want to see that increase. We don't want to see more kids smoking pot. But compare that to the increases... Among the people aged 18 to 25, your college age pot smokers. Now, 18 to 20, they're not supposed to be smoking pot. 21 to 25, they legally can. We've seen that use go from 24.18%, that is about a quarter of college age people smoking pot in Colorado monthly, to 31.75%, almost a third of college age people smoking pot monthly in Colorado. So we've seen the relative increase go up by about a third amongst the college-age people. But when we look at the people 26 and older, the adult users of cannabis in Colorado, their monthly use rate increased from 7.31% to 14.65%. The use among people 26 and older has literally doubled in the state of Colorado and now exceeds the use of the teenagers. Back before legalization, 10% of teenagers were toking, 7% of adults were toking. Now it's 11% of teenagers, 14.5% of the people over 26. 
In fact, it seems as if the people who have increased their use of marijuana the most are the people who can't buy it from a classmate between periods at school. The other panic about the children is that legalizing marijuana has caused it to infiltrate the schools, leading to suspensions, expulsions, and referrals to juvenile law enforcement. And that did seem to be the case around 2009 when the medical marijuana dispensary program got underway. There was a, a big spike. Uh, the overall rate, and this is uh, the rate of kids per 100,000 students because they had a fluctuating number of students in the state. But it did in 2005 when you added up the suspensions, expulsions, and referrals to law enforcement come up to just over 800 per 100,000 students, that had declined to as low as 700 per 100,000 students as of 2009. But by 2011, the combined figure had climbed to over 900. But now, the combined figure is back below 700. It's back below where it was at its lowest point in 2009. Now, it's important to note that we're talking about all drug-related suspensions, expulsions, and referrals. The report this date is based on didn't break it down in the incidents by which drug was involved. So we don't know how much of that's marijuana, how much of that's cocaine, meth, spice, whatever else. And it's also possible for one kid to have multiple incidents in one particular year. So it's not perfect data here. But what we found is that the suspensions have remained steady since about 2011. We've still gotten about the same number of suspensions, around 550-ish. But the expulsions and referrals to law enforcement have been halved. We have half as many expulsions, half as many referrals to juvenile law enforcement since marijuana legalization. Another worry was that legalizing marijuana would lead people to drive stoned on the roadways, leading to increases in DUIs and highway fatalities. But information from the Colorado Judicial Branch's annual reports shows that on a per capita basis, there have been fewer charges of DUI since 1992 every single year, except 1999. It's gone down every year. There were over 1,100 DUI charges per 100,000 people in 1992. Now in the legalization area, we are at half that, below half that, just over about 420, believe it or not. We had um, a statistically significant decline in DUI charges every year. However, there is a warning here. Since legalization in 2012, there's been a disturbing annual increase in traffic fatalities. There were 447 in 200, 2011. That went up to 474, 481, 488, and 546 in 2015. And preliminary figures from Colorado Department of Transportation shows that the number will be over 600 in 2016. But that increase in fatalities is mirroring a larger trend throughout the nation as a whole. According to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, job growth and low fuel prices led to more driving. Increased leisure driving and driving by young people increased total driving by 3.5%, the largest increase in 25 years. So it's more people driving more often that have led to more fatalities, not the legalization of marijuana. 
That's all the time we got for Hour 1 for you podcasters. Thanks for joining us for you listening live on YouTube or RadicalRust.com. We're back with Hour 2 right after this. We're taking a look at Project Sam trying to stop legalization in Vermont and Rhode Island. I'm Radical Russ. Until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seat, you plan it, you grow it, you giant, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seat, you plan it, you grow it, you giant, you roll it, you smoke it.